0: Today's scripture comes from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verses 1-14. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat out of his morsel, and Drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, <clears throat> and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, "'You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, "'I anoint you, anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. "'And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, "'and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. "'And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. "'Why have you despised the word of the Lord?' To do what is evil in his sight, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly but i will do this thing before all israel and before the son david said to nathan i have sinned against the lord and nathan said to david the lord also has put away your sin you shall not die nevertheless because by this deed you have utterly scorned the lord the child who is born to you shall die this is the word of the Lord."
1: Thanks be to God. Please join me in the time of prayer once more. God, thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. God, at this time, as we are about to hear from you, may You pierce our hearts with your life-giving and life-transforming word. We commit this time to you. Thank you. And in Christ, let me pray. Amen. Last week, we took a closer look at Second Samuel chapter 11. It's a passage about David and Bathsheba, how David fell into sin and ended up committing the sins of adultery and murder. Today, we'll be taking a closer look at the following chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 12, how God pursued and restored David. And as we unpack this chapter together, we'll be focusing on three things. Number one, confrontation. Number two, conviction. And number three, confession. Let's jump into the first point together, confrontation. It has been more than one year since David committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah in order to cover up his own heinous sin. And at this point, David believes that he actually got away with it. And then no one will ever find out what he really did. But David was seriously mistaken. And as the, the, the last verse of 2nd chapter 11 reminds us in verse 27, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God saw, God knew, and God was displeased. Now today's passage begins with God intentionally sending a prophet named nathan to david the question is why and here we see god's pursuing grace and this is god's relentless pursuit after david who has been running away from him and hiding from him and this is the pursuit of grace in second samuel 11 if you read it one more time you'll be able to see that clearly david was the one who was in charge The verb send appears throughout this chapter. David sends and inquires about Bathsheba. David sends messengers and takes Bathsheba. David sends word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite and brings him home from battle. And David tries to send Uriah the Hittite home so that that could be part of the cover-up, but that does not work out. So in the end, David ends up doing something else. He sends Uriah back to Joab to the battlefield where he will eventually be killed. As you can see, David is the one who is clearly in charge. David is the one who orchestrates the series of events that lead to the death of Uriah. David abuses God-given status, power, influence, platform, resources in order to cover up his own sin. And in doing so, He lets sin run its course. In this chapter, David is acting as if he is God. He is plain God. But starting 2 Samuel chapter 12, today's passage, now God takes over. God is now in charge, and God sends Prophet Nathan to David in love. And this is the pursuit of grace. Now, why does God send uh, Nathan to David? It's because grace pursues in order to expose the sinner in his sin because grace pursues in order to restore the sinner. And this is how much God loves David. As you will see, God's going to call him out. And it's going to be painful because he will be exposed. But this is the most loving thing that God can do for David. Now, in his commentary on Second Samuel chapter 12, Dale Ralph Davis writes the following to help us better understand why God sent Nathan to David. And this is what he writes. The first one reveals that God will not allow his servant to remain comfortable in sin, but will ruthlessly expose his sin lest he settle down in it. You may succeed in unfaithfulness, but God will come after you. What immense and genuine comfort every servant of Christ should find in the first six words of this chapter. Not that God's pursuing grace is enjoyable, but what if grace did not pursue? What if God abandoned us when we succeed at sin? God loved David too much to leave him at this place of brokenness, and this is why he's pursuing David in love. I think Tim Keller is also right, and when he writes this, as he points us to the importance of God's pursuing grace, and this is what he writes, God sees us as we are, loves us as we are, and accepts us as we are, but by his grace, he does not leave us where we are, especially if we are caught in sin, living in sin. This is grace. Notice how Nathan begins the confrontation. Nathan begins by sharing a story It's more like a sample case, and he presents it to David. I'll read from verse 1. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, and the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he bought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Nathan begins this confrontation with this story. Now, Nathan knows that this particular story will catch David's attention and that it will indeed provoke him to anger. And upon hearing, that's exactly what happens, right? David gets really upset. He's pissed off. He explodes. But how did Nathan know that this particular story would bother David? Here's the thing. David was a supreme judge in the land, and he wanted to make sure that the people who are living under his authority uphold the law. He was a man of righteousness and justice, and because David was a supreme judge in the land, Nathan decided to bring a story that would connect with him, and that's exactly what he does. For Nathan, it was intentional, and as a matter of fact, it was directly for David, and it was directly, um, it was directed at David for a specific purpose, as we will eventually find out. Did you know that in this interesting story that they, uh, Nathan presents to David, there are two, two hints, subtle hints that are embedded that incriminate David. See, Nathan was very cunning, and he was masterful in, in approaching David in this matter. Our first clue is in verse 2. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. He was a shepherd, and he was wealthy. Who does that remind you of? David, right? Verse three: To the poor man, that one little ewe lamb was so precious to him; it was like a daughter to him. The word for daughter in Hebrew is actually "bat," and it is the first, uh, say, uh, and it is the same first syllable for the name Bathsheba. Two subtle hints to kind of let David know: Hey, to Nathan is letting him know: Hey, David, I'm actually talking about you. You may not realize until later, but this is for you, right? But notice how David responds to Nathan's confrontation in verses 5 and 6. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the land fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Here David is actually quoting Exodus 22 verse 1. If a man steals an ox or sheep or kills it or sell it, He shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. As you can see, David clearly knows the law, the commandments of God, the word of God. And as the king and the supreme judge of the land, David wants to make sure that the law is kept and the people uphold the law. And for this reason, he probably thought at that point, maybe Nathan is bringing me a case among the people in the land. And so because of that, that pisses him off. That man deserves to die, and he needs to pay for his own sin. But do you see what is happening here? David, hear actually delivering his own verdict, guilty. Guilty, but he doesn't get it yet. And here, David feels what God must have felt when he broke his heart by committing sins of adultery and murder and living a life of spiritual uh, complacency, right? But do you know what is really ironic here? And this is the best part. David gets furious when he sees the same sin that he has committed in someone else. And I think it was because he was living a life of spiritual complacency, and sin dulled his spiritual sensitivity. Without hesitancy, he sinned, and it didn't bother him. And he covered it up, right? It is all good now. But when he sees the same sin that he committed in other, in someone else, he gets pissed off. <laughs> See the irony here? This is what Nathan is doing. And at this point, David has—I uh, mean, Nathan has David right where he and God wants him. But notice how he approaches David. He doesn't just kick the door right open and say, David, I have something to tell you. You murderer, you filthy womanizer, you, heart, you, you, know, you ruthless uh, deceiver, you evil king. We know what you have done. He doesn't do that, right? He doesn't do that. But with this fascinating story that grips his attention and heart, now he is able to sucker David into actually accusing himself. This is perfectly set up. Alexander White comments on Nathan's brilliance and how he perfectly cornered David without even him noticing. And this is what he writes. Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David knew that Nathan had a sword. And notice what happens next. But this was a sword of the spirit coming for David for his much-needed spiritual heart surgery. And Nathan is going to thrust the sword of the spirit into David's spiritually complacent and broken heart. And from this moment onward, for David, finally, the process of healing and restoration will begin. Let's jump into our second point conviction. Verses 7 to 12. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wife before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and ye shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Finally, about a year later, He gets called out by God through Nathan. But this is painful for David. But at the same time, this is the most loving thing that God can do for David, right? And this is the spiritual turning point for David. Now, this section, verses 7 to 12, conviction, can be further broken into three sections. uh, Grace, accusation, and retribution. And let's talk about this. Now, in verse 7, as uh, Old Testament commentator Dale Ralph Davids uh, notes, he begins, Nathan begins this part with grace. God does, and this is what he writes. God begins with grace. For sin to appear as lurid as as it should, it must stand in the blaze of grace. Treachery may only appear hideous when viewed against the fidelity it has despised. So God calls out David, and this is what he says. David, I've been so good to you. I have blessed you beyond measure. I've taken you and appointed you as king over Israel. And under your leadership, the kingdom has flourished because I have blessed it. You have won won many victories because I have given your enemies into your hands. But as if that wasn't good enough, this is how you have despised me. This is how you respond to my grace. God is telling David, look what you have done. And afterwards, he tells David straight up, I know what you did. But he doesn't say, I know what you did. He spells it out for him, right? I know you killed Uriah the Hittite and you have taken his wife Bathsheba to be your wife. I know. I know what you did, and here God is pointing out the senselessness of David's sin and he's getting accused for it. God exposes and uncovers the depth of David's sin. What he has done because God knew. Well, not, not only that, but as he uncovers and exposes, but this part also reveals the depth of God's unveiling love and his pursuing And sustaining grace. I know this is what you have done, and I hate it. I despise it. But I will still forgive you. And this is why God begins with grace, right? But verse 10, the retribution. But God tells David, because you have despised me, because you have sinned against me, because you have ruined and destroyed the lives of people that you were called to serve and love, now you have to pay the consequences. So retribution, verses 10 through 12, God is telling David, now you must live with the consequences of your own sins. And God tells David, the sword shall never depart from your house. Did you know that the primary theme of 2 Samuel, starting from chapters 13 to 20, following this chapter, is all about trouble in David's house. Because of the sins that David has committed, his house gets wrecked. The kingdom gets wrecked. Now David has no choice but to live with the painful consequences of sin. And in these chapters are mentioned turmoil, chaos, tragedy, rape, murder, revenge. Sin is messy and chaotic and it will destroy David's house, and it will break the kingdom. And David has to live with it, unfortunately. Let's go back to Exodus 22, 1. And this is actually what David quoted, right? If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it and, or, or sells it, he must repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. This was the law of the land. Repay four sheep for a This is what David said. This is what he should do, this rich man, this rich shepherd. But that's exactly what God does to David. Do you know what happens? Four of David's sons end up dying following this divine confrontation with God. The first one to die is the son that he will have with Bathsheba. He dies. The second one to die is Um, Amnon, which is David's first son, he gets killed after raping Absalom's sister, Tamar. And Absalom, David's third son, ends up killing his own brother, Amnon. After that, Absalom, David's third son, dies. Do you know what happens? He tries to rebel and conspire against his own father, so Joab comes and kills him. You will not take the throne, Absalom, so he gets killed. Now, the fourth son, Adonijah, He also ends up dying. He also tried to take David's throne by force. So Solomon, who is a rightful heir to the throne, ends up executing him. Because of the sin that David has committed, and according to the law, that's exactly what happens. And he has to live with it. Four of his sons end up dying. In his book, David, a man of passion and destiny, Charles Swindle warns us about the lingering and lifelong consequences of sin. And this is what he writes. All sins are forgivable when confessed and forsaken, but some sins carry tremendous ramifications, the awful, sometimes lingering consequences. David died hating the day he fell into bed with Bathsheba because of the constant conflicts and the consequences that resulted. David had to live with it, suffer the consequences of his own sins. Brothers and sisters, momentary pleasures can cause lifelong consequences. I think oftentimes as broken sinners who are prone to wandering away from God, thinking that there's something so much better out there, Our lives look more like this, I think, if you are honest with yourself. Instead of doing our best to draw near to God and as closest to Him and cling to Him, oftentimes we're trying to draw as close to to that thing that you think is going to bring you contentment without having to face the consequences, right? We want to get as close to this thing, right, without having to experience, feel, or go through the consequences. And if you're caught in sin now, or if you've been living in sin, or perhaps you're being tempted to pursue that or or this, whatever that thing is, if you're struggling, perhaps this is a a prayer that we can all offer up when facing temptation. It comes from Pastor Gary Kell, and, and I think this is helpful. Lord, help me to feel now What I feel later if I give in to this sin? Because at that moment, the heat of the moment, perhaps all you care about is satisfying your urge, the desire, the momentary pleasure. And you can care less, or perhaps you even forget about the consequences that that may come with it, right? Pray this prayer. If you're facing temptation... God, help me to feel it now, what I may feel later if I give in to this sin, the mess that I may have to go through, right? And here's the thing, too. If you're in Christ, you may give in to temptation, but you can never sin joyfully. You can never sin joyfully. Because the Spirit of God will convict you. <laughs> there will be guilt and shame that follow So when you're facing temptation, brothers and sisters, and when you're about to give in to sin, pray that that God will give you the strength to, to withstand, to stand firm in faith. And if you can't help it, then turn to your brothers and sisters who love you, to keep you accountable, so that you don't end up in place like David did and having to face those terrible lifelong consequences. Let's Jump into our next point, Confession. Notice how David confesses, and he does, in humility, after being convicted, after being confronted by God, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And it is right, according to the law, David deserved death. Leviticus 20.10, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.22, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, and so you shall purge the evil from Israel. God could have killed David at that moment to purge evil from Israel, but he does and he extends grace, right? But that doesn't mean that you're also free from the consequences of sin. God forgives. He offers forgiveness, but he also inflicts the consequences of sin, which David has to live with. But notice what God is doing for David. Confrontation leads to conviction and it leads to confession. Confession. David humbly submits to the word of God. Now, after Nathan left, when David was alone, perhaps this is when he wrote Psalm 51. That's a humble, genuine, honest, heartfelt confession. Let's read it together. Starting from verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. After this much-needed confrontation with Nathan, and after God breaks him, convicts him of sin, this is how David responded. Honest, genuine, heartfelt confession. The love that had been extended to him, the grace that had been shown to him, the mercy that he has received from God, I mean that overwhelmed him. The sturdiest affections to respond in this way. He couldn't believe it. I deserved nothing but death, but yet God has spared me. So he confessed. But also this was a form of worship for David. When was the last time? The gospel has stirred your affections like this? And I ask that humbly because I'm guilty of this too. When was the last time after hearing the gospel, after reading about it in God's precious word that you're brought to your knees to go before God the spirit of gratitude and thankfulness? Because all we Deserve is nothing but death and wrath of God. But yet, God has extended mercy, He's shown us grace. And even today, He continues to pursue after every single one of us, our wandering hearts. And He will not stop because He refuses to see us getting comfortable in our sinful life. So He will pursue, He will confront, He will send Nathan's to you so that you will turn back. Respond in faith confess, and, and turn to him and live a life of faithfulness, a life that is pleasing before him. And I wonder if you can remember, if we can remember the last time that we responded to God's mercy and grace and love the gospel in this manner, perhaps the gospel has become jaded in our own hearts. And I think this is something that we need to take seriously as we honestly reflect the condition and the state of our own hearts. Where we are in our walk with God, is our, is our hearts really in tune with the gospel? Dale Ralph Davis offers some sobering words for all of us. The church has lost the marvel of such forgiveness. In public worship, we mumble through our prayers of confession admitting we have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, even calling ourselves miserable offenders. But it's all in the script, in the church bulletin. It's another thing for it to seize our mind, to convulse our emotion. Instead, we have lost the goosebumps on our souls. I mean, isn't it true it's so easy for us to just go with the motions, Week in and week out, we come and we recite the words that are being projected into the screens. But there are times we just walk away unaffected. It's just another thing for us to do on a weekly basis, right? Brothers and sisters, I do believe that we have to, to cry out to God and cling to Him all the more and ask for His mercy so that every time we think about Jesus Christ, what he has done for us, the gospel, the depth of his love for us, they will stir our affections. And he will lead us to worship. We're forgiven in Christ, accepted in Christ, adopted in Christ, perfectly loved in Christ, our lives forever secure in Christ. If that doesn't lead you to worship, if that doesn't stir your affections, then perhaps your hearts have become spiritually complacent. Perhaps we have been living a life of compromise. Perhaps at the center of our lives, it is we who reign, not God himself, right? And it is because the finished work of Jesus Christ. And as Hebrews 9.27 reminds us that just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, you know, on that day comes, we are going to be standing before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. But because of what Jesus Christ has done for so undeserving and broken sinners like you and me, on that day what we will be standing before is not the judgment seat of Christ, but the throne of grace. And on that day, who we will be standing before is not an angry judge, but a loving, merciful, gracious, heavenly Father. The verdict that we will hear on that day, not guilty, has already been brought into the present. If you're in Christ, you already know what you will hear on that day. It's not Guilty, but it is not guilty. Welcome home. If the gospel has become jaded in your heart to the point that you're continuing to live a life of spiritual complacency, which will lead you further down to a life of compromise and deliberate sin, ask God for mercy to stir your affections for him, to open the eyes of your heart so that you'll be able to see the beauty of the gospel, the depth of his love for you, so that, like what he did for David, that he will come for you so that you can turn and live a life that is worthy of the calling that he has placed upon you. Maybe you've been living in sin. Maybe you're caught in sin. You want to go back, but... You feel as if God will not accept you anymore. Jerry Bridges in his book, The Discipline of Grace, I think these two sentences pretty much sums up what he shares in this book, and I hope this brings you comfort and also warning. The second part, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Keller also offers the following words. And may these words come for you. The gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Yet at the same, very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hope. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. And yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. That's the promise of the gospel. And I really pray and hope that the Spirit of God will convict you of the sins in your life. But not only that, but that will cause you to turn, to return to Him. And that the gospel that, if it really became jaded in your heart, will not be the case anymore. That as God begins to stir your affections for Him, you know, as Dale Ralph Davis talks about, those spiritual goosebumps, they will come back alive. And it will continue to lead you to a time of worship and gratitude every step of the way as you seek to follow Him as your Lord and Savior. Now, God forgave David the guilt of sin, but He did still inflict the consequences of sin. Four of His sons end up dying. David's son will die in his place. This is unfortunate. But even in that um, event, we see a glimpse of the gospel. David's son will die in his place. It already points to Jesus Christ who comes from the house of David, the line of Judah, the suffering servant, the substitute, the substitute savior who has been promised to take our place on the cross, where he'll become where he'll become sin for us and curse for us. And this is mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. As God is establishing his covenant with David, then this is what God tells David. This is before uh, David committed all those. Anus, right? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's not talking about Solomon. It's talking about Jesus Christ. It's been prophesied. It's been promised. The Messianic king who come from the house of David, the line of Judah, God's own son. He will die for you and me, so that we could receive new eternal resurrection life, which we so undeservedly have to receive, right? And this is the promise of the gospel. Now I would like to end with just two practical applications. We all need Nathan's in our lives because left to ourselves, we will be doomed and we will ruin our own lives. So the first application is be a Nathan for someone that you know is caught in sin, was living in sin, was blinded by sin. Another way of looking at being a Nathan is speaking the truth in love, right? Proverbs 27, 6, Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. The literal Hebrew translation there is, trustworthy are the bruises caused by the wounding of one who loves you. God confronted, disciplined David because God loved him, and that was the most loving thing that God can do for David, to call him out in his sin and call him out of sin, right? Right? Charles Swindle, he offers four things to keep in mind um, as we seek to be David, I mean Nathan's to one another. Uh, first thing is absolute truth. Do not confront if you don't have the truth. So first thing, absolute truth. Number two, right timing. Right timing. Do it privately. Learn from Nathan. Don't do it over social media. Don't blast it over Facebook or Instagram. It's not the place for that. If, if the Spirit of God convicts you to be a Nathan for someone, do it in private. okay. And I think um, right timing is also uh, very important. And I want to read a quote from Charles Swindle regarding God's timing and the, the, why God waited until a year later to confront David. And this is what he writes. God's timing is absolutely incredible. What was he? Uh, I mean, when was he Nathan sent? Right, right after the act of adultery, no. Right after Bathsheba said, I'm pregnant, no. Right after he married Uriah's pregnant widow, no. Right after the birth of the baby, no. It's believed by some Old Testament scholars that there was at least 12 months interval that passed between uh, before Nathan paid a visit. God waited until the just right time. He let the grinding wheels of sin do their full work, and then he stepped in. God not only does the right thing, he does the right thing at the right time. So timing is important too, right? Number three, wise wording. Learn from Nathan. Nathan planned his approach carefully. So we need to think it out. You need to process, right, before you approach that brother or sister who's caught in sin or living in sin. Four, fearless courage. Be certain that you are confronting out of love. Make sure that you're doing it because you really love and deeply care for that brother or sister. Pray for your own heart. Pray for that person's heart so that God will be in the midst of that confrontation, that conversation, so that it will lead to confession and turn spiritual turning point for that brother or sister. But these four things that uh, Charles Swindle offers absolute truth, right timing, wise wording, fearless courage. I mean, it all takes much prayer and wisdom and discernment. But when God convicts you to be a Nathan for someone, I pray that that, that you'll respond in, in faith because you love him, that you love her. Because the most loving thing it may be painful that you can do for him or her, is to be a Nathan to that person. Now, number two, when God sends Nathan to you because you're just so blinded spiritually, because you've been so spiritually complacent that you don't even know what is happening in your own life, you're just caught in sin, living in sin blatantly, when God sends Nathan to you, pray for humility so that you will listen humbly and that the Spirit of God will convict you if needed so that you'll respond with a genuine, honest, heartfelt confession like David did after being convicted. Proverbs 25, verses 11 and 12. Timely advice is lovely like golden apples in a silver basket. To one who listens, valid criticism is like a gold earring or other gold jewelry. It's precious and valuable. Precious and valuable. Timely advice. Valid criticism. And we all need it because we all have blind spots spiritually. Have you ever considered how David must have felt after he successfully managed to cover up his own sin? How do you think he felt? Do you think he cried out Now it is well with my soul. Now I can live on. Now my life can go on. That's not how he felt. Did you know that he was in misery? Absolute misery. And this is mentioned in Psalm 32, verses 1 through 4. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Yeah, he managed to hide it, but his soul was in agony because of the sins that he committed. So, the time that passed after those sins that he committed, he was miserable. And then now you see why this was the most loving thing that God can do for, da- for, for David. He set him free. He allowed him to, to confess as he extended grace, love, and mercy. And brothers and sisters, this is why we need each other so that we can have a safe place to confess and confess frequently, honestly, the sins in our own lives. And of course, our own Nathans can be uh, should be people that you can trust, so that you don't end up letting sin grow deep in your heart and, and take your places that you do not where it want to be, and this is why we need community. This is why we need each other, accountability. we need to fight together, right? First Corinthians 10:12, "Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall." Charles Swindle, once again, is very helpful here, commenting on this verse. Wedge between the words stand and fall are the words take heed. We need to do that on a regular basis. If we do not take heed by running as fast as we can run from this kind of temptation, we will fall just as David did. My point, his flesh and our flesh are equally weak. Unless we take heed, our flesh will lead us into a similar sinful excursion, and our consequences, our grief, and are, will be as bitter as his. we need each other and we need to constantly get together on a regular basis so that we can fight together grow together run the race that is marked before us together and as hebrews 10:24 through 25 reminds us do not neglect to meet together but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near but did you know that the word there encouraging is actually confront Confront one another out of love, and ask those honest questions: How are you doing? And don't simply respond by saying, "I'm fine," knowing that you're not. And when a loving person that you can trust come and ask, "How are you doing? How is your walk with God?" I pray that the Spirit of God will um, really open your heart to be able to share honestly what's really going on in your heart and life so that you can keep each other accountable so that none of us will ever have to live with the consequences of sin that David had to live through because he let sin in to his heart by becoming spiritually complacent. God has given each other, God has given us NCF, and pray that this will be a place where we can continue to grow together, fight together, a place where we can continue to honor and glorify God. Let's pray. Lord, we need you, and we desperately need you God, every hour, every moment of our lives. Father, we pray and ask that, would you continue to be with us? And thank you so much for your love and your mercy and grace. But God, especially if we have been spiritually complacent, and if we have been living a life of compromise, if our hearts have grown cold and jaded, Father, would you awaken us, Lord? And if we have been living in sin or caught in sin, would you send David's, our, I mean, send Nathans our way, Lord, so that we can return to you? And thank you for this gift of community. Help us to continue to push each other closer to you, as we seek to become Nathans. Uh, to one another. Uh, thank you for your faithfulness that you have shown over and over again. We praise you for being who you are in Christ. Let me pray. Amen.